0: listening to why we do what we
1: do all right this is your host abraham
0: and your co-host ryan oh so
1: this is why we do what we do
0: welcome welcome welcome
1: and uh, let's actually start by talking about we usually tag at the end of this thing and just in case you're one of those people who will get most of the way through an episode maybe um, but not necessarily finish it uh, we there's some information we always put at the end and we'd like for you to hear in case you missed it
0: yes so part of this is uh, we what is it like maybe 20 hours to put an episode out start to finish there's a whole lot of work that goes in this, if I were to guess, from writing, to researching, to recording, to editing. And part of what we do is on Patreon, we have a system set up to where you can go out and you can support. It's literally as little as a dollar a month to just kind of help out, right? Yeah. Um, so we're asking people to go check that out. Consider supporting a little bit if you like this sort of stuff. Um you got anything on that, Abraham?
1: Well, I mean, if you can't support us, then the ways that, at least financially, that you can support us is to subscribe, to um, let other people know, just reach out and say, hey, I think you'll like this podcast or something like that. Just tell other people and uh, and get other people involved in um, and listening to what we're doing.
0: Maybe grab their phone at a party and just like unlock real quick and just forcibly subscribe to the podcast. There you go.
1: Always <laughs> oh, a good idea to force someone to do something. Total joke. Uh, so in in addition to that, if you want to reach us, what well, you can always contact us at any of the social media platforms. It's at www.podcast podcast
0: on everything. Yeah, on everything. Yes,
1: and then you can reach us um, at uh, um, at our email if you'd like to. Basically, the same thing. Just info at and then same end there.
0: Yay! Cool. So what are we talking about
1: today? All right. Well, let's start by t- telling a story, and the story that we're going to tell has to do with something unfortunate. And so if this is, uh, I guess we should give a warning up front that if this is something that you are uncomfortable hearing about violence to people, very understandable, I personally am sometimes made uncomfortable by this, um, then you might want to skip ahead just a few minutes. Uh, I want to start by talking about what happens to a particular individual who was attacked by a dog and uh, and killed. And so there's several stories you can find about things like this online and some of them very tragically uh, about children, but that I found a little too difficult to go into. So instead chose one where it was, it was an adult. Not that that makes it you know okay or yeah. better or anything, just that these can be things that are hard to listen to. And I found it particularly troubling for myself to hear about it with kids. So I chose this adult. And the one I'm going to tell is about a woman who, for whatever reason, uh, climbed in over the fence into a neighboring yard and was attacked by some dogs there uh, who were, subsequently killed and of course she was actually killed in in that attack as well and don't want to go into details beyond that because they can be fairly gruesome i think one important piece to bring out of the story is that the family was concerned that as an outcome of the the attack there was a lot of focus on talking just about dogs and the breed of dogs and unfortunately i think there was not there was not enough emphasis placed on the person and the victim in the story and and what the outcome was for her family and, and her life and the people around her and i think that that's fair and, and i and i hope i'm not doing them a disservice by using the story to once again bring up dogs and personality because that is the, the point of this episode but i just want to pay respect to that family and what they went through at this which is terrible and you know that we feel for them and this brings up the conversation to something important to what we're talking about today we're going to start relatively specific and there's this thing called breed specific legislation have you heard about this
0: yes i have it's a topic that pops up every once in a while on the news feeds and like the google alerts that i have
1: right it's this blanket sort of term referring to some kind of laws or legislation that either regulate or ban or impose some kind of financial or other fee or whatever um, restrictions on certain breeds of dogs, specific breeds of dogs, and the point being an effort to decrease attacks on humans or other animals from those breeds of dogs, assuming that that those particular breeds are. The most dangerous, the ones who uh, impose the highest amount of risk, right? So, a good place to start, I think, is to start discussing dog personality. These
0: sort of like legislations usually built around the premise that this these personalities, right, are influencing why this legislation happens. Is that
1: right? Yeah, that there are specific personalities that are endemic to a particular breed and specific and unique, at least to that breed in the way that they're they could be treated as a category to be dealt with that is that is dangerous that is predictably dangerous yeah
0: okay i like that predictably dangerous so the idea here is that we're gonna dive in and see if these things are predictably dangerous and personality traits there's a big five that we've talked about on this podcast before right when it comes to human behavior
1: yeah for humans and they sort of assign these also to dogs
0: look at that big five and dog personality traits so
1: they're a little bit different than the humans, though.
0: They are. Yeah. So real quick, we have playfulness, curiosity, or fearlessness, chase proneness. That's an interesting one. Social yeah. ability and aggressiveness.
1: Yeah. And so often people report on these specific traits or maybe more accurately tendencies for selecting a dog as a pet. So in general, you might see a list for People who are trying to select their dog that's going to have things on that list such as how well it adapts to a specific living condition, how affectionate it's going to be toward a family, how kid-friendly, how friendly it is to other dogs.
0: It's drooling level, groomability, teachability.
1: Yep, how uh, uh, friendly it is to strangers, how easy it is to care for if you're like a first-time owner. It's
0: intelligence, intensity, exercise needs, or energy level.
1: Yeah, if it's mouthiness, playfulness... It's relative hunting instincts,
0: sensitivity, barking, howling tendency, ability to be alone, weather tolerance, weather tolerance.
1: Yeah. So like if it's, uh, if it is tolerant, I guess, to heat or cold, depending on sort of the climate it's in.
0: That way you know how much you're having to spend for little doggy uh, coats and stuff. Up there, front. Exactly. That's the idea.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> we have a couple others here. The tendency to wander off. Um, and there's some non-behavioral ones here too, right?
1: Yeah, obviously people might be selecting dogs based on their size, their general health, or their uh, how much they shed.
0: Which I, I feel like that's probably what a lot of people lean towards first. I don't know. That's my gut.
1: I mean, I, I could see those being pretty critical things. Um, yeah. You definitely want a healthy dog that it, your landlord will allow.
0: Whether or not you want a lap dog or not, right?
1: Right. Yeah, That that's true. That too. So interestingly, you might notice that we left um, drooling in the section included that we sort of described as behaviors. And this is because this is a reflexive behavior. And we haven't done a deep dive on, on instincts and reflexes with, the, with Pavlov, but that certainly is something that would be... Uh, a, a fun topic to tackle.
0: Yeah, and also uh Zing Yang Guo's work on instinct was pretty awesome, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. See that episode we did on epigenetics. Um, but this is, behavior. Or, uh, drooling is a behavior, nonetheless, and it's one that is affected by our learning and by our experiences, and that's why it belongs there.
0: Yeah, the argument is it's a little bit different, right? Being a reflexive rather than that larger learned history that we're kind of used to and talk about on this podcast
1: right you're probably not going to be training your dog to drool more or less depending on the circumstance <laughs> maybe, maybe you will i don't know
0: um and for anyone interested reflexive behavior can also include things like your heart rate your blood pressure right. um your galvanic skin response there's a, a whole different class there that we've referenced a few times probably when it comes down to did we do an episode around um oh the polygraph
1: Oh, yeah. That was yeah, a perfect
0: yeah. one. That came up in the polygraph quite a bit. <laughs> wow.
1: Who would have thought the polygraph would come into a dog personality <laughs> episode?
0: Yeah. So if you're looking for more, jump into that. All right. So let's pivot back. What is personality? Let's start there.
1: Right. So if we also did an episode on this, talking about personality with respect to at least humans, but inside of that, you have the general definition of personality, which is. Not the official definition, but it, it is a description of patterns of behavior, right? This is, if you see large classes of behavior that tend to cluster in certain ways, then you'll describe that behavior as being a personality type.
0: It's a great start if you want to describe broad majorities of
1: people. Right? Exactly. And so if you look at someone who is more likely to go to social events, then you might describe that as being an extroverted personality type. The important consideration there is sort of that cause-effect relationship thing, going back to circular reasoning, an important topic that's come up many times, is that if you observe that this person who tends to select instances in which they engage more with others and describe that as being extroverted personality type, then you can't also attribute the cause of their choice to do that to the personality type because it was the fact that it occurred had that description come into play and it's you can't it, that it becomes circular reasoning to say well why did they go out to that party because they're extroverted how do you know they're extroverted because they went out to that party right and you just fall into that trap once again and so it's useful I think to just be considerate and careful in understanding that when we talk about personalities we're simply referring to these sort of um, aggregate tendencies or uh, patterns that tend to be observed in one's behavior beautiful love it Now there are some these collections can be pretty specific behavioral forms, such as going back to these dogs, for example, they uh, they chase after things to maybe herd them, if you will, um, or they react in a specific way to social commands, and those very specific behaviors are likely to be grouped then together under a category that might be then be called what that dog's personality is.
0: All right, beautiful. So that begs the question of. Genes and the role that that genes play in this whole discussion, yeah, personality development.
1: So let's go back in time a little bit. Want to visit uh, Dmitri Belev? I think is how it's pronounced. Who was doing his work in about the 1950s?
0: All right. So I know a little bit of this, but not a lot. It's something to do with silver foxes and breeding, right?
1: Yeah. So he was interested in in genetics and breeding. Um, I'm. According to the Radiolab story, it um, was one of the places that I'd heard this story, but it's come up many times in many forms. And And he obviously published his research, which, which is out there. Anyway, they describe it as he was there sort of saying that he was doing a fox farm for uh, making fur coats or something like that. But what he was really interested in is a breeding program. And so there was this question. That was around at the time that wasn't necessarily one that Dimitri or Balev had raised, but this question of how could we account for how domesticated dogs were so different from their wolf and wolf like ancestors in a way that had really dramatically shaped their physical appearance as well as their behavioral uh, traits away from uh, away from those ancestral roots
0: do you know where he was doing this work like where in the world it was in russia okay
1: yeah i believe it was in russia okay
0: yeah because around the 40s is when uh, guo was doing some interesting instinctual and like kind of work in that area as well so I yeah was just trying to connect the dots here
1: yeah no i uh, don't think they knew each other <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so anyway Belev would capture these silver foxes and he was intending to investigate the potential to selectively breed toward uh, toward tameness and specifically away from aggressiveness. So yeah, that was sort of his working hypothesis moving into this was that you could select these behavioral traits by selecting in a way and not necessarily with intention or with any kind of scientific instrumentation, but uh, selecting hormonal and neurochemical profiles that were unique to a specific behavioral pattern he wanted to see and didn't know what those hormones or neurochemical profiles were, but he would take those foxes and, well, let's give a, a, a description of what this experiment looked like. And he specifically wanted to rule out Exposure to humans so basically just getting used to them and any amount of training and so he did limit the contact that foxes had with people
0: This sounds multi-generational and it like it took decades
1: It did yeah and what he would do is he he'd have he'd have these foxes in a cage and you take these one month old foxes and he would reach toward them in the cage And the foxes that were relatively friendly or so uh, These were these were kept and later bred uh, But the not so friendly foxes were killed and turned into pelts and so he went on this process of selectively keeping and breeding those foxes that would were less likely to shy away from human hands, would sniff at them, they wouldn't bite at them, that sort of thing, and uh, and then turning the rest of them into fur coats. And initially kept really low proportion of the foxes from the group that he had, but he began to see more consistent behaviors emerge, and was keeping more and more foxes as they bred more and more of these traits, these you know these foxes that had those traits that they were looking for
0: so he did this repeatedly sounds like for years and years and years stops having so many fur coats to get rid of um (laughs) sell and and that whole negative side of this where did it end up like how far did this get along
1: so it went for something around 40 generations of foxes or so and uh with In addition to sort of breeding out that reluctance to exhibit fear or the the decreased tendency toward aggression, Dimitri also seemed to unintentionally select some physical appearances that were different in those foxes from the other foxes. So he was starting to see floppier ears shorter, curlier tails, even some variations in their coat colors, as well as specific changes to the size and shape of their skull and teeth. That's crazy. Yeah. And he ended up with these foxes that were, they would sniff at human hands and lick them. They would look at things that they were curious about. Um, they whimpered for attention and they wagged their tails at the sight of humans. They were more eager and more curious about the world around them and more willing to meet strangers uh, sort of without backing away from them. And again, this was with the attempt to reduce any variable that would be accounted accounting for this that had to do with things like just specific training or them getting used to being fed by humans and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you try to control for it. It seems like it did a decent job. Some of the controls obviously weren't in place that would need to be there for it to be like perfect. I don't even know if you could ever get a perfect study in this, this sort of realm, right? Yeah, it'd be hard. But it's definitely showing evidence that the genes are impacting this sort of behavior, right?
1: That seems to be the suggestion. And so that, you know, beckons back to our previous episode we mentioned about genes and behavior and how uh, genes sort of work. And just to reiterate one of the points made in the episode, if not the point made in the episode... <laughs> Um, Is that genes code for the expression of amino acid sequences of proteins? Like that's what they do. And I don't know if that sounds maybe complicated or mystical, but they don't. Genes don't produce behaviors. And they they, do have
0: these like cascade effects, though, that ultimately start to impact other things down the road, right? Right. Like behavior,
1: including other genes. Yeah, and none of those are specific behaviors. They they just can't do that. These are not genes are not primary behavioral determinants. Instead, what they really do is they sort of set the potential for certain outcomes to occur more or less in one direction or another. So I think the best way to think about this is that genes will sort of heighten or mute or decrease the sensitivity to specific conditions. So you might be more or less specific to experiences out in the world.
0: That's our whole idea of susceptibility, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And I mean, I'll give you a, a human example of if genes code for a human tetrachromat, which is to say someone who has extra color vision in their available in their eyes, then they're going to be able to respond differentia- differentially to colors more so than people who do not have those color <laughs> those color rods in their eyes. Yeah, great. And um, or color cones, not rods, and. That's one example with respect to humans. Let's go to an example with dogs. So let's see, you have a bloodhound. Yeah. They're known for being great hunters, right? And being super sensitive to smell. And there are other dogs that are as well. But if, if it was the case that genes meant that they had a more robust olfactory center, if they had more nerve endings and a larger capacity for sensitivity to certain smells, then they're going to pick up on those things in the environment better than animals that don't have those same sort of tendencies. Do you know if that's true with bloodhounds? I actually don't know for sure.
0: Okay. So that is a question for the audience to confirm or deny for us,
1: right? And, well, and just the point—can this- we
0: trust all of those? What are those? Like the uh, the Sherlock Holmes type videos where we oh, yeah. see the bloodhounds running around sniffing scents out,
1: right? Yeah. the uh, The point really just being that if the if the genes produce a certain sensitivity in the species of a dog, then you are more likely to see traits and skills with that dog with respect to the environmental circumstances that they've been bred to be sensitive to. And that's true of all species, right? So, um, humans, for example, have really good vision relative to most other animals. Not all of them. There are animals that see better than we do, but the, uh, we are on the sort of upper end and our genes have, uh, produced for the amino sequence uh the amino acid sequence of protein that developed the eyeballs that we have that are capable of seeing the world around us and so we're going to react to vision in a very particular way where some animals have such poor eyesight that they barely use their eyes for anything at all and they really rely on things like their smell or their hearing to navigate their environment around them and that's effective for them because those are the sen- those are the kind of stimuli that they're sensitive to based on what their genes were coding for.
0: So a quick shout out. I'm going to definitely tag on social a few different people, but specifically there's this group called the Animal Training Academy. I know you're not on social like at all, Abraham. True. And uh, about 250 people in that group, Carrie and Ryan, we're going to specifically ask you guys' as communities like to to add some more here. This would be an interesting follow-up topic as well. Sure. Um, I never realized after following that community just how it makes sense. I knew it, but... It's when you interact with it, just how in-depth every species, like tendencies, behavioral patterns are. It's unreal. They work with every animal you could possibly imagine, from giraffes to reptiles to dogs, et cetera. Yeah. So we'll lean on y'all.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. And I think, yeah, the important take-home just in discussing how genes work with respect to understanding things like personality is that, The genes develop the physiology that sets the part of the context, which is to say the genes give us the capacity to interact with our environment in a particular way. They don't say, like, how interested we're going to be in a particular fire hydrant if we're a dog that's looking for a place to urinate. (laughs) They don't say, like... You know, how happy we're going to be to see one particular individual like they just don't do that but they do code for the physical structures of our body and the relative sensitivity of those structures to environmental stimuli and that's important that's important in understanding how these things work um th- there's a tendency for people to talk about the brain as if it is this this totally magical organ that does its own <laughs> yeah. thing yeah and so they'll they'll say things like uh you know Let's have your brain reach out and touch the brain next to you and that sort of thing. And, and talk about it as this thing, as if the brain were not actually you. And I actually even saw, there's like a a joke comic or something where someone was, was asking about like, um, what makes you, you, is it you or is it your brain? I don't remember where I saw this, but that, that sort of idea. And they got me thinking of like, well, what makes you, you, is it your, your amygdala or your brain? And you might say, well, you can't have one without the other. The amygdala is part of the brain. And my response is exactly: <laughs> our brain is part of us. It's not separate. We don't attribute behaviors to the brain. We don't attribute behaviors to just the body. We don't attribute behaviors just to the context. It's all three of those things. Yeah. Behavior exists in that in that in that situation. And you don't like if you don't have the the brain for it, then you don't have the behavior. If you don't have the context, you don't have the behavior. They all have to work together. Yeah.
0: I was recently in Kentucky and I saw the Muhammad Ali like center, who's from there. Yeah. And cool. uh, th- that's setting as to why I'm thinking of this example. But someone like in boxing or some sort of situation like that, right? Like you can't box without the arms, without the gloves, without the opponent, without the people that are in the stands and the ring and all that sort of stuff going on, right? Like yeah. the brain included. Yeah. But it is all of those things coming together that set the occasion and allow all of this to actually happen.
1: I like that. It's a good example. So, I think just generally speaking, when we talk about dogs, dogs are, they're they're territorial predators. Like, they, they have evolved from a species that are territorial predators. And so, they have the capacity to be aggressive to some extent. And so... Like some of these behaviors are things like fighting, defending, hunting, barking. They'll do. um, They'll guard things. They will work together in these packs, and they'll do these sort of postures where they get all you know big and growly and that sort of thing.
0: Described a lot of things that humans do too. Yeah,
1: that's very (laughs) true. And so this this version of aggression that's something that is very easy for dogs to do it is a part of their evolutionary history it is a part of their physiological sensitivity to stimuli to uh to arrange their own body in that way where they can curl their lips up in a snarl where they can bark all those things are easy and available to them like i can't like raise my hackles and curl my lips up into a snarl and bark, at least not like a dog can. I don't have the physiology for it. I'd be impressed. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so like those things are available to all dogs, all of them, every breed, every kind, every one of them. As long as they're alive, they have that capacity. They come from that evolutionary lineage.
0: So what happens when you get into a specific breed?
1: Well, the, the first we have to understand then what a breed is.
0: When we talk about breeds, we're talking about behavior just now but there's it looks like it's largely focusing on the physical characteristics so there's these things called phenotypic traits these are the size co-color structure and behavior and generally humans are breeding animals around these things size co-color structure and behavior which is how we define what these breeds are.
1: Yeah, perfect. Well said. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the, uh, the Federation Sinologique Internationale, <laughs> instead of my French well accent. done. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Uh, this is the largest international group of kennel clubs located in Belgium concerned with breeding, showing, and promoting dog breeds. And this group, uh, the, the FCI, is what we're going to call it, this group recognizes 337 pure dog breeds. So we're not going to list all of those because that would just be boring <laughs> and there's a lot. But that's, uh, those are the the breeds that seem to exist according to this particular group of, of people.
0: Okay, and just to restate for everyone, that's generally their physical characteristics, but they do kind of include their behavior loosely.
1: Right, and so it's important to understand where does personality come from? We already talked about genes a little bit. Why are these traits so readily and commonly observed in specific dogs? And so that means we need to now talk about genes training and circumstances that lead to more specific behaviors that we see
0: yeah and i know historically dogs were named bred for specific jobs right such as hunting herding this is still like evident in our culture right and we we see people talking about dogs in this sort of way and still breeding for these things right
1: yeah how we talk about and sort of think about what we expect from a particular breed of dog is still influenced by those historic treatment of dogs with respect to what they were bred to do originally and sort of the work that they did and um, research has shown that dogs of specific breed groups might share some skills uh, but other than the specific skills that they might share they actually don't necessarily have that much in common especially with respect to things like their interests and even their personality
0: so there's a cool video we can link in this, right? That yeah, shows that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a video that'll be in the show notes, and in the video they talk about a study that was done in Sweden with 13,000 dogs of 31 different breeds. And what they did with these dogs is they ran them through these these courses, and inside of these these like sort of I don't want don't know if I should call them obstacle courses, but some kind of like arena, if you will, where maze they Maze of some sort. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that was they they do maze for like intelligence testing, but uh-huh. uh, with this one they had essentially these like stops along a route and in these stops they had various sounds there were some that were supposed to be surprises and then they had these stops that were just people trying to interact with the dogs in a friendly way and use this to sort of look at the types of personality that they saw with respect to those dogs that went through that track and they were measuring specifically their playfulness, their curiosity, their affection, and their aggression. And what was interesting that they noted in the study is that these behaviors did not actually differ among different breeds. Most dogs actually acted more like breeds outside of the group than within their breed group, which is to say the variation was greater across groups or within groups than it was across groups, like the, the sort of average. That's sort of going back to talking about things with um, gender is another one as well. That the the range and variability that you see within a gender is greater than the range of variability you see across genders, and so that there's so much overlap that you see little bits of extreme in one direction or another, but most of them you can have um, very, I guess, similar traits um, can, like a lot, even though the breeds and with respect to dogs are very different. Now. Many other studies have shown that all breeds of dogs are capable of learning and performing at the same level as one another on intelligence tests. And this is where that maze comes in and other sort of intelligence testing systems, I guess, where they compare these different breeds of dogs and essentially found that all of them were capable of performing at the same level. Now, of course... It's important to note that there are individual differences that will occur. So you'll have a dog that is not as smart as another dog, but that's not to say that that dog's species is not as smart as the other dogs or not species but breed as the other dog's breed, right? So okay. yeah, so you might have the individual differences are going to be are going to be very different uh, from one another, but the average across the species is that they are all capable at least as a breed of the same level of intelligence. And finally, in another t- uh, study that I found in 2002 in Applied Animal Behavior Science, as a journal, they reported a factor analysis that found of 15,000 or more dogs from 164 breeds that four of the five big five personality traits were related to each other. And the only one that was not related was aggression. And we already talked about those personality traits. Interesting. Yeah. And then there were some studies that I saw that, that sort of suggested there were really only two ways of sort of categorizing dog personality. It's like, there's only two types of dogs in this world, them who is and them who ain't. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, uh, they sort of talked about them being as extroverted or introverted and as being fearful or curious. And those are sort of the two ranges that they looked at how dogs might vary. So again, there's sort of the subjective scale of we create the categories and then try and push the dogs into those categories. And that's what personality is. And then that's how we expect them to behave based on their breed.
0: And is this, these indi- so these individual differences are occurring, but is it due to the breed?
1: Well, many studies suggest that behavioral characteristics are somewhat stable within a breed. And then there are even others that say that they're opposite. So it's Surprise. hard to know. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to know exactly where to land on that, but even if they are or are not similar, what would account for those differences? So
0: one aspect we've talked about on this podcast before is the morphological features. This is like the form and the shape, right? Like a human, me, myself, I can't stand on the edge of a building and jump and expect myself to fly as much as I wish I was Batman. That's not something I could do, right? And the same holds here with um, dogs and the breeds. Certain breeds are only going to be able to do so many things because of their morphological structure, right? And none of them can fly off of buildings. Yeah, so they can't fly <laughs> off of buildings as much as we all wish we could have a Wonder Pup that's jumping off buildings and flying around. What was that cartoon character?
1: I don't remember now. I know what you're talking about. Ah, though. okay. Yeah.
0: Bonus points to anyone who helps us with that in the comments. <laughs> but I, I think a big one that I've noticed is certain dogs can only jump so high, right? Right. And that's a limitation of the way in which the, everything from their skeletal structure to I think the genes, the expression, the leg size, all that sort of stuff comes together, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so another thing that might account for these differences that we'll see is the human tendency to sort of see what we expect to see and ignore variations from our expectations so if we see a let's just use pit bull as an example and expect it to be aggressive, then every time we see something that looks like aggressive behavior, we're, we're more likely to remember that and say, oh, look, there's an instance of aggression. That means I'm right about my assumptions about this animal. And every time that we see instances in which it's not aggressive, we just simply ignore those because they don't fit into the sort of available rule that we have or the assumption that we have about what that dog is supposed to do. And so in other words, if we assume a dog is aggressive or if we assume that It's nice. We look for signs to confirm those expectations and simply ignore the things that don't meet whatever our assumption is going to be. And that could be with respect to any of those traits, with playfulness, with curiosity, with anything. You know, we get a dog saying, Oh, this is a dog that's really good at chasing things. I'm gonna give it a thousand opportunities to chase things, and every time it does, I'm gonna say, Hey, look, I'm right, that breed chases things. And then and that's how one of the factors that's going to affect the extent to which we see those individual variations or even what look like breed-specific behaviors. And another example of that same thing is, so I just mentioned sort of playfulness and chasing things. Um, another one might be, well, this is a dog that's really good at outdoor activities like hiking. And so I had to take the dog on lots of hikes. Well, you also just then gave the dog lots of practice doing hiking. So one thing that we we see sometimes is a factor that contributes to these Um, These behaviors these these individual behaviors that might look like they belong to a breed is that we treat them in accordance with that assumption and therefore that trait develops or like we assume that this dog is really good with kids and so we give it lots of opportunities to play with kids and provide lots of attention and affectionate uh, rewards for it being gentle and kind toward kids and say oh look this dog is good with kids or We get to that fact that if a dog is, uh, we assume the dog is going to be aggressive, so we treat it with fear and neglect and punishment. And we put that dog in situations where its only option is to be fearful and aggressive. And and it has to fight to get what it needs. And then we say, oh, look, we're right. That dog is aggressive. But what we did is we treated it as aggressive before it was aggressive. And that aggression developed. Sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Interesting. So that is, if you treat a dog as being more aggressive, you're likely that you're more likely to cause that aggressive behavior. And the if, same, if, the if it wasn't way, right? already aggressive, and yeah,
0: you can treat it as if they're being playful, and probably see more playful behaviors develop.
1: Right. Yeah, and sort of so on and so on with various types of behaviors.
0: And this kind of summarizes things that we've said on this podcast before, which are these behavioral traits are assumed to be selected over generations, but within the lifetime of, say, like a dog in this circumstance, um, we see these things selected as well. So we selectively reinforce, punish, ignore behaviors. And whether it's intentional or not, like we've seen with uh, the research was being done by that one gentleman, mm-hmm. um, we shape the behavior of our pets within their lifetime.
1: Right. So we will, as you already said, we'll sort of select the kind of behaviors. And, and just just as you were mentioning that over the course of generations, that the assumption here is that those behaviors are selected by breeding them specifically. And to an extent that happens and well, that happens within a lifetime as well that we select and choose those behaviors that are going to evolve over that that dog's lifetime and that means that we're going to um, again purposefully or not make them more or less aggressive more or less playful more or less curious etc etc and that those are are some some ways that those things can develop and so y- you know, research has shown that um, puppies tend to be, and we, and you know, I think people generally would give this sort of excuse anyway, but um, puppies tend to show less tendency or uh, like exaggerated versions of their breed typical or breed expected behaviors. And so, like, we'd say, like, this dog's really playful, but then we see a puppy, and it's not really doing much, and then then you might have the excuse, well, it's because they're just a puppy. Or, like, this dog's really aggressive, and as a puppy, they're just sort of playful, not doing much, and you give the excuse, well, that's because they're just a puppy. Okay, sure, but really, that excuse just illustrates the point that those specific behaviors are therefore largely learned, and starting as puppies, they have a lot of opportunity for variation in their behaviors and their personality as they develop toward an adult and so we are responsible to an extent in shaping and selecting the kinds of behaviors that we're going to see in that dog's personality over time they depend on us to to live right like they they are put in a circumstance where the only way that they survive depends on the human's their, whoever their owner is, their capacity and their willingness to provide an environment in which they sort of thrive and do well. And then that will shape how that dog behaves. And then finally, I think it's always important to understand that circumstance is a really critical feature of that development. And it plays an important part of understanding personality as well. And so I'll just give you an example, um, specifically, okay. Of, and I'm just making I'm not not this is not a story. I'm just sort of making up a, a hypothetical example of how this occurred. But what I mean by circumstance is essentially the opportunity to perform. Right. So if a dogs put in a situation where it's neglected, it's starving. Those capacity to like seek food, that instinct, if you will, is particularly strong and and pushing toward like do whatever it takes to get fed because they're really hungry, um, which is something that most animals will do. Yeah. Um, then in that circumstance, they're going to learn a way of accessing food, which might be being aggressive. It Mm -hmm. might be doing something else. It might be sort of whimpering or whining. It might be chewing a hole in something and getting out of their restricted environment to go find something to hunt. Yeah, Like whatever that's going to be, that circumstance is really important in understanding what they're going to do. If they're put in a situation where they're exposed to lots of other dogs and that is a sort of positive, um, happy environment and they, like this is their early on in their development where they are, they haven't had a, an environment where they were like restricted from access to other dogs. Well then the, that circumstance is they have the opportunity to interact with dogs in a safe, positive way that they're then more likely to be friendly toward other dogs. And if they're withheld from other dogs and social experiences and they don't have that contact, then after they've developed that, this is how I behave in my relative isolation. Then once they're exposed to strangers and strange dogs, then they're, this is a totally brand new stimuli and their reaction might be curiosity, but it also might be fear.
0: Which, yeah, this just brings us back to this whole idea of things like instinct, right? Are they really instincts or not? And you can really pull these apart.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can push them really far in one direction or another. Yeah. Just Um, based on that, that context and circumstance. Yeah.
0: So, I've referenced a few times, Guo, he was interested in researching where do instincts fall apart and mm-hmm. circumstances like this, like you're describing, Right, were a huge part in whether or not people were labeling certain instincts and what they saw and right. reported. So let's bring this back now into breed-specific legislation. Talked about what it is a little bit. I know it's a always a very hot topic of where people fall. Yeah. So. We, I think we all know it's largely targeted at a s- specific breed of pit bulls.
1: Well, it's at pit bulls, almost yeah. exclusively at pit bulls. Not, yeah. n- not necessarily a specific breed of pit bulls, but at pit bulls generally. Yeah, sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah. And so research has shown that even if the other personality traits might be linked to specific breeds, aggression is actually not one of them. Even those researchers who have found in their studies that you can more or less attribute some of those personalities to a breed type. Aggression is universally pretty similar across, across those different breeds. And furthermore, evidence does not suggest at all and suggest against the idea that breed specific legislation is effective at reducing attacks from dogs. What? Yeah.
0: Surprise. There's a disconnect between our legislation and research. Yeah.
1: Welcome to America. Well, and the, well, this is across countries, too. Many countries have breed-specific legislation. Um,
0: I'd love to know what it's like in your neck of the woods as you listen. So please comment. Let us know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know we have listeners in other countries and whatnot, so, um, so we'd be interested to hear if you know about this.
0: So is there any studies specifically with pit bulls
1: looking at this? Well, uh, there are several, um, and all of them show that pit bulls are no more likely to be Aggressive than in any other breed of dog, but one interesting one I found uh, showed that pit bulls actually scored higher than many other dogs on a temperament rating scale, and that is to say <laughs> that they were less likely to be aggressive than some other breeds of dogs.
0: Was this like funded research by somebody that had like breeds pit bulls and owns the biggest shelters in the world? Blah blah blah.
1: You know, that's actually a great question. I didn't. I didn't check the funding okay. source on this. I probably should have.
0: Dig, we'll look into it.
1: So. Another thing to consider with respect to this breed-specific legislation is some of the outcomes of this. And is breed-specific legislation good for the dogs?
0: All right. My understanding is that dogs largely suffer from this. Is this correct?
1: Yeah. And so essentially what can happen from this is that people will try and hide their dogs. They will prevent them from getting exercise or being socialized. They will not license their dogs They will, or microchip their dogs. They're more likely to avoid spaying or neutering their dogs. They will avoid appropriate vaccination for their dogs. They create this, this type of legislation creates this climate where it's residents who want to have this breed of pit bull or any dog that's being targeted by this, which is again, largely pit bulls, but yeah. not exclusively. That they are—it's almost impossible for them to ensure a a nurturing environment for those dogs, where they're less likely to be attacked. So these dogs are are—they get the worst type of care, the most amount of neglect, and they're sort of forced into a position of being dangerous, and sometimes are hurt, um, killed, or. Again, otherwise, just sort of suffer more generally. Again, I doubt sp-
0: they're adopted as frequently.
1: Yeah and, right? yeah, and they're not adopted as frequently. So like, they tend to be homeless more often. So it, then that, again, becomes that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So this yeah. is definitely not good for the dogs.
0: And if you were to guess, the owners are then also suffering. So there's going to be housing issues, legal fees. Um, and I know personally people have had to get rid of pets or yeah. um, leave them behind as they transition to new states or new cities and opportunities.
1: Right, where they might have that legislation in place.
0: The public safety. What about that?
1: Well, that's actually the most critical point here is that the legislation is intended to protect people so that there are fewer dog attacks. But really, it's not intended to do that. All it's really intended to do is find a boogeyman to point the finger at. So if we can sort of have someone that we can lay the blame on, our scapegoat, and and then give the appearance that legislation is occurring to actually do something, then a lot of people feel like, oh, at least the government's doing something. But it what this actually does is other breeds are simply ignored and the attacks continue and programs to teach people better ways of taking care of their pets are not considered or funded and the problem continues and furthermore better enforcement and dog owner responsibility are ignored or or the emphasis on this is reduced and again the attacks continue so like public safety is actually threatened by having breed specific legislation because it pretends that if we focus on a specific breed, these dog attacks won't happen. And that's just not true.
0: Yeah. A little bit of a bold statement. I think I can stand behind that.
1: Well, I mean, and and largely the evidence is there to suggest that when this has been in place, dog attacks don't reduce. Yeah. It actually creates more of a problem. Yeah. And like, it's, again it's just the the tendency that we have and this is so true in our criminal system our criminal justice system as well as point the finger accuse someone find someone to punish for this and if we can do that we've done our job yeah but that's not it like this there is a systems level issue going on and just punishing people for having a particular breed of dog won't solve it
0: dig yeah okay you've convinced me i'm standing behind this okay (laughs) i like it Um, so the science is there that this, this doesn't work as it currently stands. Right. So is there a better way to approach this?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is sort of a great place to wrap this up and and bring it back to the main point we've been making this whole time is that with a specific breed of dog, you might get some amount of tendency toward a trait right okay but to ensure that the kind of personality that's going to sort of work for you and your family and for your pets you really have to create the opportunity and the training to make that a realistic sort of life for them. And that means training them, setting them up for success, not neglecting them, creating a loving and, and nurturing and mutually beneficial relationship with those dogs so that they have the opportunity to react appropriately to stressful situations. And part of that is actually introducing them in a safe way to stressful situations that you can teach them how to react appropriately if they're going to be faced with those situations and maybe even if they're not going to be faced with them just in case that something unexpected occurs. Dig,
0: I would say to anyone listening, if you're trying to find somebody that can help you specifically with training a certain animal or breed or et cetera, um i know a pretty extensive group of folks now after this last year of networking that community and love to connect people so let me know
1: oh and there's also that one podcast that you were on the drinking from the toilet bowl i think it's called.
0: yeah we I was gonna we definitely have to shout out so hannah branigan uh drinking from the toilet she and I did an episode, just not kinda, not
1: that she was drinking from the toilet. that's the name <laughs> of the podcast.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, it is a great resource. We did an episode. It was pretty awesome. We'll make sure to include that in the link. Um I've actually already tweeted a photo and tagged her that we were recording on this episode. Perfect. So, um I know her attention will be towards it. Fantastic, great human. Awesome. Um, yeah.
1: All right. Uh, any other things to sort of wrap this up, take it home, like things to what critical things to leave this episode with?
0: Uh question things. Right? Yeah. Like just because you see a law or you see some sort of thing or you hear something like this breed does X, Y, or Z, always question. I think that's what we've done here today, that there's a a whole lot of different things that come together. It's not always just the brain. It's not the specific dog, right? Yeah. It is the circumstances and all of these things coming together.
1: Yeah. And especially like, you know, like humans, dogs spend their lifetime learning. And so if you get an older dog that is going to have already more developed sort of, reactions that it's going to have to the world around it and those will be a little bit harder to train you can still train them they're just you have to undo some things that have been done if they are not going the way that you want them to so you know starting younger is a little bit easier but it's not the only thing that happens like older dogs are certainly trainable that whole saying that can't teach a dog new tricks is completely incorrect
0: yeah total bs
1: yeah um so I think just knowing that any, any dog is trainable, but there are going to be dogs that have so much learning and experience with avoiding and fighting and defending themselves that you just have to be prepared for an uphill battle. And if that's something you're willing to take on. And if not, then don't like let someone who is willing to take that on, take it on. Don't put your dog and yourself in a situation that you're unwilling or unable to handle.
0: It is much more work than people expect when they see the cute little puppy and they just want to be able to snug up. Yeah. Snuggle up with it. Right. Right. Um,
1: and we do a lot of these things unintentionally where yeah. where we sort of accidentally shape up aggressive behavior um, when we, we give in when they're being a little too aggressive. And so that sort of teaches the dog, this is how we get out of this thing yeah. I don't like. When we give in, when the dog is whining or barking because we don't like that. And so the dog learns, this is what I need to do to get the things that I want.
0: Yeah. I know many animal trainers that spend 15, 20 minutes a day forever, um, minimum, you know, um, working with their dogs. And Yeah. I think that's something to take home here is if you really want to be providing this like really good nurturing environment, you're going to be, you're going to be putting in work every day.
1: Yeah. It's a commitment and it should be treated as a commitment. Like know that going into it, it's never just going to be this super easy thing. Raising kids is an example. You don't just go in and it's expecting, well, they'll, they'll figure it all out without me having to do anything. (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, it's a lot of work and raising dogs. It should be treated with a, a similar level of, understanding that it's work like you, it has to be intentional and it should be done with the the sort of care and time and compassion that goes into shaping the life of an organism that doesn't necessarily have the tools to do any better
0: dig all right i think that's a good place to wrap it up perfect anybody that's listening from the animal training academy um anyone that's listening from drinking from the toilet if we've made any impact there awesome thank you may find some things interesting here um but it is quite a different style of a podcast so thank you to everybody that's listening do we have any other updates
1: i think that that's it i, mean, I don't think there's there, so.
0: okay cool and we're reconvening and reorganizing today on a phone call so excited to see what comes out in the future this is ryan O. this is abraham we are out
2: you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons Thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreoncom podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwwwdcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes,